Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for my recap of part one of our TV series, The Forgotten West Memphis 3. Just to refresh your memory, uh, in part one, that was the part where we heard from Pam Hicks, we heard from Ryan Clark, we heard from Dr. Rebecca Shu, the medical examiner, and we heard from Dr. Lori Newman-Lee, the herpetologist at Arkansas State University. And before we get going into your questions, I know that all of you that watched the entire series, you are chomping at the bit to get into everything that we covered at the end of the series. And believe me, I can't wait to get into that either. But here's the thing. We, and if you've watched the whole series, you know what I'm talking about. We have things planned, or we're we're going to have things planned to try to push the call to action at the end of the series. And part of that involves physically getting together as like a sit-in and a physical protest in Jonesboro outside of Scott Ellington's office. But with this social distancing limitations put in place right now due to the COVID-19 virus, we can't do any of that anytime soon, at least for a month. So there's no reason for us to be in a hurry. And I want to make sure that we thoroughly cover each of the four parts of the series. So that's why this week we covered just part one so we could get into it in depth. This Friday follow-up will be about that part. And then next week, or here in two days actually on Sunday, I'm going to be covering part two of the of the series. And then next week will be the follow-up for that and so on and so forth. Just a little bit of a heads up in next week for my breakdown of part three. That's where we got the profile delivered from Jim Clementi. And Jim is actually going to be joining me on that episode for the for the part three breakdown. And I thought I'd see if I could get John Cryer. I haven't checked. I haven't asked with him yet. But I think I'm going to try to get John Cryer to join me to break down part four of the series. So that's all going to be coming up. Um, but we're going to go through all this very thoroughly. I am joined over the phone because we are staying remote. We're actually all three in different cities as we were last week. But I am joined by our producer and podcast mechanic extraordinaire, Mr. Mike Bussing. What's up, everybody? And we are, of course, joined by the voice of the people, Mr. Zach Weaver. Please save me from my children. <laughs> Zach is uh, Zach's, Zach's in pretty rough shape right now, locked into his house with his kids. But yes. we're all doing well. We're going to keep it positive. 
and we're going to get right into your questions right after this short break. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so before we get into the questions Mike has for us, Zach, I know you've been waiting a long time for this. You've been a West Memphis 3 case enthusiast for many, many years. What did you think about part one of the series? Uh, it was really good. It was nice to recap everything. And the moment that really got me, which I, I guess, I don't know why I haven't thought about this up until you talked to Pam. But when Pam was talking about that moment of her collapsing on the ground, you know, I never thought about that as that's literally the worst moment of her life. And everybody in the world gets to see it over and over and over again. Right. Dude, that part in the moment while I was sitting there, and then even again when I was watching it, dude, I was just, Pam brought me to absolute tears during that, that, that part of the show. I don't, know, I don't know what it did for you. You and I are the big criers. I was definitely in tears. It was tough. You know, and, and like I said, I don't know why I hadn't thought about that before. I mean, obviously, that's a, it's a horrific moment to witness, you know, her falling on the ground, you know, like that, just screaming. But I never thought about it from her point of view of like, that's people watching her worst moment of her life. And it just continues to play over and over again. Yeah, I, I was the same as you. I did not see that coming when I, you know, when we were t- talking to her about when I was when I was asking her about, you know, what it's been like and, and going through all this. And, you know, the, the whole reason that it was important for me to people to see that is Pam, as I said in the episode this week, Pam, Pam's got a bad rap. She's had some issues for sure. And I feel like the world has never got to see the real Pam, the, you know, the, 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 the root of all of those problems that she has and the fact that who she really is, is a grieving mother. And, and I think I, I really believe, feel like we accomplished that mission and to be honest with you, when she, you know, just just kind of out of nowhere, you know, she was she was talking to me because obviously the way they're cut together, you don't see everything. And you know, I talked to Pam for hours and hours. You saw about ten minutes of it. Yeah, but you know, she's talking about the different things, and then she just, I mean, fire in her eyes when she said, "And then the world saw me fall. The world saw that." And it's exactly the same. My reaction is the same as yours. Like I had never even considered how horrible that had to have been for her. Yeah, that was really rough. And it, I'm like you said, I'm I'm happy she opened up the way she did because she is a grieving mother and that's I don't think enough people understand that. You know, people want to ask so many questions about this entire case. They want to ask different people different questions. You're like, you have to realize these are grieving parents still. Like, you know, you want to ask Pam questions of like, what did this happen this day? Did you remember this? She doesn't remember. I mean, she just lost her child. Right. And you know, there's a lot of people that on social media, have asked you know, did you know, you know specific questions? Did you ask Pam about this? Did you ask Pam about that? And the answer is yeah. I mean, I asked her relevant questions for an investigation, but you know, she doesn't she doesn't remember things. You know, you know, she it was it was twenty seven years ago, and at the time, you know, a lot of people are asking questions relevant to her husband at the time, Terry Hobbs, and she's like, you know, at the time, she didn't think that Terry did this. You yeah, know, she wasn't. You know, so so she wasn't looking at any of his actions, you know, we've heard all heard the story of, and we're already getting off part one and we're going to circle back to it. But you know, the, the story that, that her sister has told about how 
we saw, you know, that night Terry was doing laundry and cleaning up, and he's never done that before. And first of all, obviously, we don't know if that's true. If it is true, then, you know, from Pam's perspective, it's just, you know, things are going really bad, and her husband's just helping out for once. Yeah, and not to defend him, but, you know, that's stuff we've all done. You know, if my wife has a bad day, I mean, my, my wife's gone through a lot of trauma and, and there's some things like those days that I've helped her out where I wouldn't normally do things. And I'm not by any means defending Terry Hobbs, but you do step up. Right. And I guess the bigger, the larger point is there's no, she at that time had no reason to suspect that meant anything devious nor any reason to commit it to memory. Exactly. Because there was more important things going on. So now on a little bit nicer side of this the herpetologist stuff was really cool yeah i thought so too i i wish you know i wish that we had had four or, or we had had six episodes okay because for me knowing that you know knowing everything that we put into all these interviews and stuff it kills me to you know that that everything was cut down so much it had to be chopped down so much to make it four episodes mm-hmm. because there was so much more uh, discussion with both Dr. Newman Lee and Dr. Shu. You, you know, there was actually like six different turtles that the herpetologist Newman, Dr. Newman Lee showed me that I and, and explained to me and showed me the claws. And she really got into more about how they feed and their feeding patterns and the locations where they would be located. Okay, uh, but even with what they they that, that made the final cut, you know, I I hope that was now, now you're somebody who's known enough about the case for long enough that you're obviously well aware that this turtle theory is not new. Correct. Did you feel like anything new was added by her or did it did it help any in any way with your understanding of the case? I like the fact that she actually you, you know, obviously you could tell it was hard for her to see the photos, but she actually looked at the yeah. photos and said, "No, that's that looks like this. That looks like this." You know, broke it down, she explained it, she showed the claws of the turtle. I mean, she really showed it. It wasn't. It was more of actually explaining the theory rather than the theory itself. Well, and I think the subtle difference between what we did and what was done in, say, West of Memphis is that, that I think maybe people overlooked. You know, for the most part, people had the same reaction you did, but there were a few people that were like, uh, duh, this turtle thing's not new. Yeah. But the thing is, when, when the turtle stuff was brought up previously, in like 2007 to 2011, what it was is people were looking at injuries on the boys and saying, this could be turtle, this could be turtle, this could be turtle, look at this shape, this shape, blah, 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 which was all useful. But after that, and the reason we, we addressed it is because it's still been an extremely hotly debated topic. If you go on any of the social media pages for that are full of the the nons, the people that believe the West Memphis 3 are guilty, they'll tell you the whole thir- turtle theory is bullshit. That you know they were they were bought and paid for defense experts and 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 it doesn't mean anything. So for me as an investigator, I needed to know. Well, I, you know, I don't know if that's true or not. And so that's why you know we originally went down and did those experiments, which you saw some of that. Mm-hmm. And why I wanted to speak to a herpetologist specifically was because I wanted to take a different approach with it. What I wanted to know is from a from a scientific standpoint, not even necessarily the specific wounds, but from a scientific standpoint. Would turtles live in that habitat? Would they live in that habitat and be feeding in early May of that year with the conditions that were out there? And the big one to me is, is it even possible or reasonable to think that three bodies of any sort could be put into that water for 18 hours and not have turtles feed on them? 
So it's, it's a little subtle difference there, but it, made, it was a big deal to me. And, and what we found with our testing with the chickens and with the, with the pig was it's not possible. When you put flesh in that water, they're on it immediately. And, yeah. and, and, they, and they chew it and it's destructive. So for someone to say that none of those injuries, which they have, if they're going to use Jesse Miss Kelly's confession as their evidence the, of the guilt, then they cannot concede that those injuries were caused by turtles after death because his entire con- confession explains every one of those injuries as part of the act of them being murdered, even though all that was being fed to him by Ridge and Gitchell. So if those injuries were not part of the murder, then his confession even further falls apart. So they'll still hold on for dear life. But to me, if knowing what we know now, I have bringing in scientists, this was not a defense expert. I'm not part of the defense team. These were independent experts that we hired as part of an investigation. I never spoke with any of them until after they had their final. When, when I interviewed all those people, it was the first time I met them, every one of them, except Jim, obviously, because I've known Jim for years. So when an independent expert that who works with turtles, traps turtles, and studies turtles for a living says, yes, that area is prime feeding ground for turtles. Early May is prime feeding time for them. Their primary food source is carrion or, or flesh like that. And there's no way that they could, those bodies could have been in the water and not be fed on by turtles, at least to some extent. And then our, our, our experiments show that they are not just to some extent. I mean, it's, it's pretty massive feeding by the turtles. For someone to be able to look at that and then still say, nope, none of those injuries were turtles is, in, in my opinion, completely disingenuous and, and I'd even say willfully ignorant. I agree. So the one thing I need to ask you as a viewer, uh, how big was that turtle? It was about the size of, pretty close to the size of my torso. Not quite that big. I mean, I, I think he was he was probably close to two feet long without his tail and, you know, about, you know, two thirds of that wide. But he was, as you saw, I was, uh, I was big old scaredy cat. Did not like that turtle. Yeah. I, we noticed, I think the world noticed that, uh, that thing seems pretty aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> well, and did you, but uh, a big part of that too, when we got to see the turtles is, you know, there's all these scratch marks on the boy's bodies that people are, you know, the, you know, the Fogelman's trying to explain to people, oh, that's the back of us, of the the survival knife being scratched across their shoulders, which is ridiculous. And then you look and see like, oh, those turtles have massive claws. They use the claws when they feed. And when Dr. Newman Lee looked at those same injuries, she said, yeah, that those, those are turtle claw marks. You, you can, even the number of claw marks is, is what you would expect to see from a turtle doing that. So yeah. all those injuries are easily explained. And if you look at the two sides of it, so you have, you have the West Memphis three is guilty side. Look at the somersaults they have to jump through to make these part of the part of the crime scene. For some reason, Damien Eccles takes a Rambo survival knife that we know was in a lake a year before the murder, and he used that and flipped it on its back and used the the sawing part of it that's made for like actually sawing wood with, and took on Chris Byer's shoulder and turned the back of it to it and scratched it along there. For no reason whatsoever. That's the only way to make that injury make sense. Yeah. Or we look at science like, yeah, turtles have big claws. And when they feed, they scratch. And they have that many claws and there's that many scratches. So that's obviously what it is. I mean, it's like in order to, to, to maintain one theory, you have to jump through a million hoops when the, when the obvious answer is science proves. And, and that, that was really the basis for the whole series for me is that 
you know, what we learn along the way is that what people say doesn't mean shit. We have to rely on science. And I'm basing my opinion off science and experts that are completely independent. And when it comes to the turtles, there was, there's just no question about it. You know, we, we, it was two pronged too. So we had Dr. Shu looks all these injuries and says, those are all post-mortem. Everything but the head and head wounds are post-mortem and probably from animals. Then we have Jim Clementi look at him, who's been, who participated in the predation studies at the FBI, where they studied exactly this. And he says, those look post-mortem and they look like the injuries we see or we saw in the predation study. And then we move on to the turtle, the herpetologist who says, yeah, that's what turtles feed on. And that's what it looks like when they feed on. For anybody to be able to listen to those three independent experts that have nothing to do with the defense and be like, nope, that was somebody scratching them with the back of a knife. It was not turtles. is is just ridiculous. So I have another behind the scenes question. And actually, this is for both of you. So since you guys watched it and watched what that turtle could do. Now, I know personally you both were in that bayou. How do you guys feel about that? Does that uh, give you some alarm now? Well, well, Mike was actually never in the bayou. Oh, it was you and Shane? Yeah. Okay. Mike was there. Mike, Mike had a bad experience on like five minutes into day one. Yeah. I explain that much. Yeah, I didn't even make it to the bayou, man. I had I had enough issues on, on the shore there. I ended up catching <laughs> I ended up catching uh my first exposure ever to chiggers, which are like little I don't know, like grass living bugs that like They're like mites of some kind. Yeah, they and they burrow into your skin and and I think there was also a little bit of poison oak mixed in there because <laughs> Not only did I have these little sores all over my legs, but I had like, it looked like, you know, like poison oak all over my, up and down my legs. It was like one of the worst experiences I had, <laughs> I've had, I, I've had in the field with Bob. Yeah, it was, it was right at the beginning. So we we're spending a week there and Shane meets us there. And so the first thing that happens, you know, Shane and I, Shane and I are old country boys, right? So even though it's 85 degrees and hot. We're wearing blue jeans and boots. Mike is wearing tennis shoes and shorts. Yeah. And so we, we, the first thing we did is we walked across the pipe and we wanted to go to the actual area where the crime scene was located. And we were trying to film some stuff because we didn't, this is before we knew there was going to be a TV show, but we thought there might be. So we were just trying to capture everything on video. And Mike, and, and I swore to him, I will never share it and I never will, but we have a GoPro vest that, that holds like four GoPros on it. Oh, yeah. All different angles. And so Mike's wearing the, the GoPro vest and the GoPro hat. He's got three cameras rolling on him. Plus, he's holding our big camera. And when he was going across the pipe trying to keep track of all that, he gets to the very end and thinks he's on shore when he's not, steps between the pipe and the beam, and fell so hard. Ugh. So hard. Yeah. And during that process, not only, so, so, not, so you got the chiggers. Let's not forget the fire ants that got you the next day. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I stepped up. <laughs> Stepped on a fire ant uh, ant hill there, right out of the truck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, so they got those two things going on. He also took this hard fall on the on the pipe, so he, his legs are bruised as shit. When he gets off the pipe, we did confirm it was both poison ivy and poison oak because he was wearing GoPros. And while we watched him, then once he fell, he took two steps and then fell again. And we watched him grabbing for, with oh, his left no. hand, poison ivy, and his right hand, poison oak. As he tumbled down the hill afterwards, with his bell still rung from the first fall, it it was rough. I mean, it's it's kind of funny to look back at it now, but that's how Mike started um, our investigations. And after that, Mike pretty much didn't go down the hill anymore. No, <laughs> poor no. Mike. 
No, Mike Mike ran the camera from up top, and and that that was his job. And so uh, Shane, it was Shane and I that were down in the water. You know, as far but as far I guess to your question, the the turtles that the, they're not aggressive. I mean, they're, they're scavengers, right? So they're not. It it doesn't bother me knowing those turtles were in the water when Shane and I were in it. We knew that. We, you know, because we started off just by using ropes and dropping chickens down, but they were eating the chickens so damn fast that we we couldn't keep up with them. You know, we 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 would put the chickens in the water, drop the GoPros, which had about a two hour battery life, and then we would go back to our hotel and and hang out for a little bit, and then go swap the batteries to get more footage. But when we go swap the batteries or swap the cameras, the the meat was already all gone. So, so we knew what was in that water. There's, we even saw a big old alligator gar in some of our footage, which was weird. You wouldn't expect to be in that bayou, which is a, a big, ugly fish with big, sharp teeth. Yeah. But so we knew all that when we got in to put the – we had to get in when we put the pig in the water because we wanted something bigger uh, to, so we could get, get more footage and, and get a better idea over time what was going to happen. And uh, But, yeah, it, it didn't bother us at all. But the pig was – we didn't see the pig on the TV series, but the pig was really interesting. That you know, we left in there for a couple days and got a lot of great footage of the of the turtles feeding on it. But it, obviously, that was its skin was much tougher than the chicken stuff. So it was you know, you had a bunch of bite marks all over the place, and they were pulling soft tissue away from it where they could get at it. But it it wasn't obviously like the chickens that were just mutilated immediately. Uh, but then we left, and Mike and I went back. What was it, about two weeks later, Mike? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we went back again to do some more work a couple weeks later. And we left the pig. We took obviously took our stakes and ropes and stuff off, but we left the pig there. Mm-hmm. Um, we just let it sink down to the bottom, and we thought we'd go. To, it's been two weeks, so I, I wonder what would have happened to the boys' bodies had they not been discovered. Two weeks later, the only thing with any meat left on it was the rib, one of the rib cages, and it was the one that was down. I think the, the, the pig had just been completely torn apart. The bones had floated away. There were bits and you know as as the as the turtles got to the point of shredding and, and this is not on the bank right where other animals this is all turtles in the water the water was very clear by that point and you could see where they had shredded it apart and the bones were floating down I mean they completely picked that tur- that pig clean in a matter of of about fourteen days so the the concealment efforts of the unsub that killed the boys uh, very well would have been very successful had they not been discovered that day and if the water level stayed up. Well, I'll tell you right now, you guys are my heroes because now that I know they're in there, there's no way I'd get in there. <laughs> well, I got news for you, buddy. That's that's every body of water in the Midwest. Not alligator snapping turtles. No, that's true. That's true. Those live more down south. But honestly, of all of them, the alligator snapping turtles are the um, the least vicious. They are They are typically the way they hunt she mentioned real quickly, if you looked at the, there was a little pink thing on its tongue and yeah. she said, that's his luring device. So the way they hunt is they lay down on the bottom of the water they're very camouflage. They hold their mouth open and then they got this little worm looking thing on their tongue that kind of waves, that, that waves around and looks like a worm and then fish swim into its mouth and it chomps them. So that, that's mostly how they feed. And then they will walk the bottoms, you know, and especially if they, if they get a scent. She explained to me it's not actually smelling, but for lack of a better term, it's smelling. So when you know they get a scent of blood or flesh from you know coming from upstream, then they will follow that too because most of them are scavengers. It's the uh, the regular I think they call them I don't remember the name for them the common snapping turtles that are more likely to actually snap you if you come anywhere near them. 
Yeah. Well, I'm not getting any body of water around here, so we're good. <laughs> Ever again. Right. Ever again. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, let's get into these questions. Our first one comes from Jeremy. Does Ryan Clark confirm John Mark Byer's story about his actions that evening? Also, Ryan adds to that Has Ryan said whether he believes it is possible John Mark Byers killed the boys? Outside of Byers' claims, is his alibi really rock solid? So that was really, really interesting. You obviously heard or saw on the, the show that Ryan has no love lost for Mark Byers. And, and I think, I'm trying to remember, I think it's, it's in a later part where he gets more into that. But he does not care for Mark Byers. He, do, he says that Mark did not give a shit about Chris and that, that Mark was, was kind of abusive to Chris. Ryan... So he has told me that he that he that he believes that Mark had something to do with killing Chris. He's always felt that way because he just he hates Mark. He thinks hate he's actually said Mark hated Chris. So knowing that, what Ryan but what Ryan also does is Ryan alibis Mark, and and of course this has all got cut down in the in the mo- in the show, but the full conversation. The thing with Ryan is Ryan's never watched any of the documentaries. I'm sure he won't even watch this one. Ryan doesn't know the details or timing of the crime scene. And that's a big part of why he thinks Mark did it, because he just knows Mark's, you know, in his word, Mark's an asshole. And and Mark didn't didn't really care for Stevie. And, and he just think Mark's, Mark's a piece of shit, basically, and that Mark did it. But when I walk through that day with Ryan, the big one is so so we got all the time before six o'clock or so when when Mark and Ryan returned from the courthouse. And there's all kinds of question there about where Chris was at, what he was doing, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But but really, what we need to know is once Mark's time is one hundred percent accounted for, could he have killed Chris? So what Ryan tells me is that he was at court, as he heard. It was around 5.30 or so. So after, so this is after Mark says he saw, Mark and Melissa, by the way, both confirmed this, that Mark saw uh, Chris on the skateboard going down the road, and he, he grabs him up, he spanks him, takes him home, tells him to clean under the carport, and then he goes to pick up Ryan. Okay, so now we're at, we're at 5.30, 5.40, somewhere around there. Now, from there, Melissa, Chris's mom, testified to and stated that she saw after Mark left to get Chris, she saw Chris outside cleaning the carport. She heard him come in and out of the house a few times. And then both Mark and Melissa have said, then once, once Mark gets home, he says, where's Chris? She said, I just saw him. He was just outside. 
and that's when they start searching for him. So what Ryan, so what I want to know from Ryan is because we can't talk to Melissa because she's unfortunately passed away is how did that play out? And what he said, he said, yeah, Mark picked me up. He told me that he had whipped Chris, which he didn't think much of because he was always whipping Chris and they got home and, and he witnessed the, you know, he, he got into the house and he witnessed Mark asking Melissa, his mom, where Chris was and witnessed his mother saying that he was right there. I, he was just a minute ago. I just saw him right there. He went in and out of the house and then that's when they started searching. So what we know is when Mark was picking up Ryan, Chris was at home with his mother alive. So, so any alibi before that doesn't matter because Chris is still alive right then. Once Mark and Ryan get home, that's when Chris had disappeared. In those few minutes when they were on their way back from the courthouse is when he had taken off. From that point forward, Ryan says they went and started looking. You know, Mark was asking neighbors across the street. Ryan was running around with his bike. Melissa was right there with Mark asking people where they were. Then they all get into the car, and they're all three in the car together driving around looking for Chris. And at this point, they're more mad than scared, right, because he had taken off and he's in trouble. But they're, they're riding around looking for Chris together. They see the officer around 7 o'clock down at the, at the Big Star, the, the store down the road. And that's when they talk to him and come back. And then eventually up at 8 o'clock is when Officer Regina Meek responds to the call and they make the missing person report. But so what we have is Ryan has accounted for Mark's time during that two hours from 6 p.m. until 8 p.m. He was, Mark was either with him, with him and his mom, or with his mom during that entire time. Mark was never alone. And there's a lot of people that don't like Mark, and there's good reasons for that. But they, they want to try to force fit Mark into a theory that he had something to do with it. And the, the reality is it, it just can't be. He was, he was with his wife and his, his other stepson during the time that the boys, the, the, the crime was committed. And there, there's just no way to get around that. And that was the thing I wanted to, to know from Ryan is, is there any chance that that timeline is is inaccurate and he's assured assured me no that that's that's what happened he is sure ryan is positive that when they got home that chris had been alive at the house moments before that while mark and ryan were together because he his mother told them he witnessed his mother saying that chris was just outside a minute ago i was just watching him and he came in and out of the house and then they started looking for him so even though Ryan, I think if you ask him, would probably tell you that he thinks Mark might have had something to do with it. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that's I, I think that's probably what you would hear from him. At the same time, he's he basically has provided Mark's alibi during that time. Because again, he doesn't know the details of the crime, so he doesn't realize that that's when the crime was committed. Brooks says, I know your time of death window is from 6.30 to 8.30, but I don't quite understand why it stops at 8.30. I think it's worth extending it by at least 30 minutes until it was 100% dark, or even later to the time when someone has searched the area behind the Blue Beacon. The reason it stops at 8.30 is for a couple of reasons. One is because at about 8.30, between 8.30 and 8.45, we have people at the pipe, which I don't know if people realize, even on the neighborhood side of the pipe, they're like, I don't know, 75 feet from the crime scene. but They're right there. So there's people right there. At that time, it was a, between 8.30, 8.45, somewhere around there, when David Jacoby saw the single set of muddy footprints 
And also the big one is he hits the pipe at about 8.30, 8.45, somewhere in that range, and the bikes are already gone. So the bikes had already been thrown in the water at 8.30. They're, they're gone. They're in the water and disposed of, which means the murder had already taken, the murders had already taken place by that point. So that's how we know that it was before them. Besides the fact that people were right there in such close proximity. And there's also some evidence, you know, there's no mosquito bites on the boys. As soon as the sun goes down, the, the mosquitoes get really, really bad in the, in that area. So, which tells me that, you know, they had to have been submerged in the water prior to really, my guess is prior to seven 30. I, to, to be honest with you, there's a window there, but I think the boys were murdered by seven. And I think the crime scene concealment took place between seven and seven 30. That's just my, my theory. And then, you know, it was an hour later by the time anybody got down there to the pipe. But, and you also have to keep in mind that even though what David described at 8.30, 8.45 was, it was dark, it was hard to see colors, you could see kind of shapes across the pipe, but that was about it. That was out in the wide open. In, at the actual crime scene, down in a, a ravine, down in that gully, in thick woods, it would have been pitch black in there by then. So there's just, there's just no way. So that, but that's why we're stopping it by 8.30, because that's the first time we know for sure People were at the pipe and the bikes were already gone. So is there any way to extend it earlier? I mean, is there a reason why 630 is the earliest? Yeah, basically because there's multiple eyewitness sightings of the boys in the neighborhood still alive until 630. You know, we had Dana Moore about quarter after six sees them all three heading north. We had Carlos Seals. There was Kim Wilson. There was uh, Ben Crafton. There were, there were several witnesses that saw the boys up near the Robin Hood woods alive all right up until 6.30, and then they stop. So 6.30 is when I think they probably went into the Robin Hood woods on the south side of the pipe, and then you know that, and that's why I say it's probably 7 by the time they get back through the trails that David Jacoby was following to the pipe you know, leave their bikes, get to the crime scene, and and then that's when they're probably killed. Again, my guess is about 7 o'clock. So I think that's a good way to put a time frame on it. All right, this one's from Sarah. Where was that house you were working from? Or was it really someplace in Los Angeles and you filmed all those scenes at one time? I know it's not about the case, but I'm just curious. No, that's a really good question. Um, I, I kept telling my family as we were watching the watching the show, and they kept showing the front of this little house. I was like, that was my home for two weeks in Memphis. So th- that, that house was in, though there were several houses uh, that, that we filmed in. And the way we did, and, and no, it wasn't all filmed at one time. If, if you were watching closely, especially the scenes where I was doing the interview uh, in the blue shirt, those were filmed over months. So you know, be, you know, every time we would go do a bunch of interviews, that we would take a day and do what I called my torture chamber because I was sitting there with a bright light in my face in a dark room. Staring at my producer Dominique's, uh, Dominique Hoffman's floating head in front of a, in front of the camera. But if you watch my closely, watch my hair and you'll see my hair constantly changing. <laughs> I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. Did, did you, did you watch it since I told you to? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely watched. I was like, within the first five minutes, I watched it change and I was like pointing it out to my wife. Yeah. And the funny thing is, some of that were, were like what we call pickups. So, you know, I, I had recorded, you know, say I went and talked to Pam and then I went in. A few days later, and that was filmed in L.A. at, at Herzog's uh, building. Uh, it, it, and I would I would recap and talk about what the next step is going to be. Well, then we'd go do other things. Then a month later, they'd be like, hey, we need you to retake a couple of these lines because you flubbed them or this didn't come out right or this didn't come out right. So I'd sit in and retake the line, and they would splice them together. 
which looked great, except for the first half of my sentence, my hair is is down to the skin on the side of my head, and then the next half of the sentence, it's it's a quarter inch long because the because it, the way it was all cut together like that. So if you watch it again, watch in those interview rooms, watch my hair change as I'm talking. I definitely wish I'd have known that afterwards because I spent the whole time watching your hair change. <laughs> so did I. Uh, but but it good, it's good that I think most people didn't didn't notice that. But yeah, so that, so we shot over three months, and the process for me was go to L.A. and we would film all the all those scenes with Jim and Doctor Shu were filmed in L.A. and then all those interviews were done with me as far as me in the room with the blue shirt was all done in L.A. and that's where we would have our production meetings and we would you know we, it was kind of our, our 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 base that's where everybody was from but me so we'd be reaching out to people you know say like Carlos Seals we're trying to get a hold of him and arrange things and figure out what we're gonna do. Then I would fly from there to Memphis, and then I stayed in Airbnbs when I was in Memphis. So when I would go, once once I would get there, it was the weird things in TV. So like the white truck you saw me driving, obviously that was a rental, but I had to get a white truck every single time I went. So for continuity, so you you didn't realize I was it was a month later when I was filming that. But the the one Airbnb that B and B they kept showing the front of it had the kind of the wood doors. I was there in that building for about two weeks. We filmed a lot of stuff in there. There was another Airbnb that was like a condo. We filmed a little bit in there. I don't think it made the final cut. There were I, I don't remember all. There was like five different Airbnbs I stayed at in Memphis, and that's where we filmed. And, and then and then we would also rent Airbnbs for the interviews. So later on, when you see me interviewing David Jacoby, you see me interviewing George Taylor. Who else? Anyway, but those we would we would rent an Airbnb house to set up to do those interviews. And then uh, Ryan Clark, we were in a hotel room, and it was a different hotel room, or it was like a conference room that we did it because he wanted to be in silhouette. He didn't want people to see his face, so we had to get a certain setup, right? So it was like a conference room. There had to be a big window behind him, and we had to get it when the sun was kind of behind him to help create that silhouette. And then the calls with Damien and Jason were also uh, done in a different hotel room. So we did, we moved around. It's 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 pretty awesome how the the production coordinators, guys named Nick Van Dam was our production coordinator, um, who arranged most of the stuff. Just the the hoops they jumped through to make it look the way it looks. I do have another funny side note too. My kids were not impressed that you were on TV. My kids got real excited when Parker was on TV. <laughs> oh, did they really? Yeah. <laughs> So that funny story about that, my kids, so we're all sitting there watching it together and we're sitting on the couch watching. And then they show that clip of me with my, with Parker, I'm in my fire department uniform holding Parker. And then Bella and Quentin are like, uh, are we going to be on TV? Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, no, he's my favorite. He's the only one that's on TV. So that, that was kind of a running joke for us because they were pissed off because Parker made the final cut and they didn't. Yeah, my kids were real excited that Parker was on TV. <laughs> so was Parker. <laughs> With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. 
Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Noelle says Dr. Newman Lee made remarks about the wounds that she determined were not the result of turtle activity. I'm unclear if Dr. Shu had thoughts on those exact wounds, if they were pre-mortem or post-mortem, and if there's a plan for any further analysis on those exact wounds. Yeah, so they were the same ones. And that was, again, we start to really narrow things down with independent experts, and you get a pretty clear picture of the crime scene if you don't have any bias when you're doing this, which is how we did it. So we, we had two independent sources, Dr. Shu, who was a forensic pathologist, who looked at the injuries on the head and said, you know what, those are the only ones that may not be post-mortem. And, and we also know that there was some, some skull fracture underneath them. And she said that it wasn't with a, like a knife. It was with like a blunt instrument, like a stick or something. So then we take the same photos and we give them to Dr. Newman Lee, the herpetologist, and have her look at them. She has no idea what Dr. Shu said. And she goes through and literally comes to the exact same conclusion. All of these injuries are all from turtles except these head injuries. Those don't look like like turtle injuries to me. Now she didn't say they look like they were, you know, anti-mortem because she's not a pathologist, so she, you know, she wasn't going to get into that. But she just said, I don't think those injuries came from turtles. Everything else comes from would have come from turtles and animal activity, but those injuries didn't. So then you put those together, and you have two different doctors with two different specialties that looked at the same wounds on on all three boys and came to the same conclusion that the only ones that weren't post-mortem animal activity were the wounds on top of it, and it was Michael Moore's head. Candace says, Turtle question. Is there any belief they put the bodies in the water later, like between when the search ended at night and then restarted the next morning? I just wondered because of the turtle bite marks and supposedly a lack of mosquito bites. If the killer was close to the case, he would have known when the search ended and placed the bodies there in the early morning. Uh, no, I don't, I, there's a lot of theories out there and I don't want to knock anybody. There's the manhole theory and several, there's a boat theory. There's all kinds of different theories, but again, it's, it's people trying to bend the evidence to fit. Usually it's to try to fit a certain suspect. You know, a lot of, a lot of them are, are based around Mark Byers, right? Cause people don't like Mark Byers. They want Mark Byers to be the suspect, but they know that Mark Byers' time was accounted for between six and eight o'clock, which is, you know, the critical time there. So the only way it could have been Mark Byers is if he had abducted the kids, you know, at a different time, stashed them in a manhole or, you know, took them out there later to to dump them in the crime scene or killed. You know, there's a lot of different ways people try to manipulate that evidence. But it's it's in my opinion, first of all, the, the boy, I think the boys were killed. You know, the, the bikes were disposed of. That's a big indicator. Everything all happened between that, that, you know, seven to eight o'clock window, probably. But. As far as the places, of, the, using that location as a, as, a, as a site to dump the bodies. So think about what we're saying here. That means the boys had been killed. They are in, obviously, a vehicle of some kind. They're mobile. Whoever has the bodies has the ability to move with them. So think about if they decide they want to dump the bodies, why would they drive? The only place they could park to get there is at the truck wash, which is operating 24 hours a day. They have to carry the bodies into the woods that are literally even if the search parties had ended at the moment, it's the apartments are right there. The searches are all centered around that area. Why would you take the bodies right exactly where everybody's looking? 
if the vehicle, if the bodies are in a vehicle, what you're and, and you're gonna dump the bodies, what you do is you drive them as far away from that place as you can get. And again, they're right down the road from the Mississippi River. There's plenty of places where they could have dumped the bodies and no one would have ever found them. And that's another indicator that they were the reason the body concealment happened right then is because this was an impulsive act. This was not something that was planned out. It was not any kind of a ritual. It was nothing like that. This happened on an impulse, and then whoever killed them had to make a decision very quickly about how to conceal the bodies, which tells you that the reason they took that risk is because they had a known personal relationship to the boys, and they knew if their bodies were found that they would be a suspect. That's the only only explanation for how their bodies were left right there. There's just no way, in my opinion, that anyone would take the bodies from a different location and then conceal them right smack dab in the middle of where everyone's searching. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Especially after the fact that they know people have been out searching. Right. And, you know, there's reports that people were searching until the middle of the night, you know, you know, two, three in the morning. I've heard some reports of four o'clock in the morning. So it's like, when, like, okay, there's nobody out here right now. So I'm going to right now take these bodies and run them out here and stick them in the water. It's one of those things that may look good on paper, but when you really think about it, it's just, it, it doesn't add up. Jennifer says, even if Jamie Clark Ballard is misremembering details about seeing Ryan in school, her mom and sister gave similar statements that corroborate what she says. Do you believe they are also misremembering and or lying? Also, do you think any part of her and her family statements are reliable? Jamie Clark Ballard is a tough one. I've actually spoken or all emailed with her this past weekend. Uh, because she she got word that I was the way she put it trying to discredit her, but she was upset, and we you know, I'm trying to convince her to come on the show and explain things. You know, I, do an interview. We tried to get her to interview for the TV show, and she didn't want to do it because I'd like to have her try and explain this. But I, I don't think there's anything nefarious going in there. I don't think they're intentionally lying. It doesn't surprise me at all that they all three have the same story because they talked about it. You know, when 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 they came forward, and and again, I, I'm not saying this is intentional. I think that. They believe what they're saying is accurate, but you know they're, they're talking about this. So of course, that you know the, you, your your memories end up lining up with each other by the time they give their statements. But as I told Jamie in our emails, like I listen, like I know your intentions are good, but there's nothing I can do with this. When I when I have when your affidavit says all these things about Ryan Clark, and Ryan Clark tells me that's not true, and a bunch of the other elements of the statement are provably false. You know, like for the example, Ryan wasn't at school the next day and he didn't find out about his brother being killed at school. You know, th- these things couldn't have happened. And he says they didn't walk home together. And then we have a whole bunch of witness statements that say we see the boys at 630 in the north end of the neighborhood. And then a bunch and, the, and that that's the big one, because that's when she says she saw Terry yelling at the boys. But it's also not forget that she says from 530 to 630, they were all playing in the backyard behind their house. Well, there's a whole bunch of statements from people seeing the boys at a bunch of other locations. They're all credible statements during that exact time. So just, I just, there's just no way. It's like either these 40 people are wrong or lying and you're accurate or you're not accurate and all the other people are, which is, which is, seems to be the more reasonable solution. Now, what I, th- I think that there probably is some veracity to her statement. If she's trying to be honest and she, that's how she genuinely remembers things that way, I'm guessing that that interaction with Terry and the boys probably did happen, or at least Terry and Stevie. It may have been a different time or a different day. My guess would be a different time. 
But it's just so hard to say because when you look at every, you know, even all three boys were on bikes, except Chris didn't have a bike that day. There's just all these different elements. Every piece of the statement is provably false, except for the part where Terry's yelling at the boys when they're driving, you know, when they ride their bikes down the road. And that's not provably false. There's no way to prove it. That's just, that's what she said happened. So knowing that, I just, basically, there's nothing I can do with that statement. Audrey has two questions. What is your theory as to why Michael Moore was discovered 27 feet from Stevie and Chris? Was he the one in the autopsy photos with the gashes on the top of his head? And her second question is, have you been able to try and reach out to Dominique Tier to get her side? Yeah, so it was Michael Moore who had the the head injury that we've been talking about. And in my opinion, that's probably why his body was found further away. So, of course, this is speculation. I mean, it's speculation based on evidence, but it's a hypothesis, I would say. In my opinion, this murder, this wasn't a triple homicide. I think that one, I mean, it ended up that way, but I believe that probably one of the kids was killed, maybe even by accident. And then the other two were killed because they were witnesses. Well, because one person, if you have an adult authority figure, especially with a known personal relationship, you'd be surprised how just them saying, hey, stop right there, don't you go anywhere, will cause an eight-year-old to stop and not go any, anywhere. Even even though any clear-thinking adult would know, okay, I need to get the hell out of here. So if so, say one of the boys, either either Chris or Stevie, is attacked first and maybe it's a discipline gone wrong the kid the, the, he dies or he's unconscious or whatever and the boys are freaking out he and then the 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 unsub yells at them and tells them to stay put and then he grabs the other one of them and hurts them too you know fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me so you see one kid get hurt possibly killed you know whether they were you know held under the water or they were just knocked down whatever it was and then you see the other one get grabbed Okay, now you've seen it happen twice. Now maybe you're thinking, okay, maybe I need to get out of here, and you take off, and that's where I think that maybe whoever the unsub was might have grabbed a stick as Michael Moore was trying to run away and hit him over the head. As far as Dominique Tier, uh, I believe the production team did reach out to her. I'm not positive about that, but I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have any interest in talking to her. To be honest with you, you know, doing this as an investigation from ground zero. The evidence never pointed us to Damien Eccles. We talked about them because we kind of had to, but it just the evidence never took us there. If you go back to the beginning and look at where the evidence is leading you, it's 100% leading you to someone within the tight, close-knit, personal circle of one of these boys. It's not some. It is not a satanic ritual killing. It's not ritualistic at all. It's not a stranger. The evidence indicates the unsub came and went from the neighborhood, and there's one single killer. So there's, there was no reason to talk to Dominique, except for, you know, because it's a West Memphis 3 thing. But, th- but this was about the forgotten West Memphis 3, not the West Memphis 3. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. 
A big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for my recap of part one of our TV series, The Forgotten West Memphis 3. Just to refresh. Oh, that was crazy. That was me. (laughs) That's helpful.